Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature rising oceans, cricket balls, and peak oil. But first up, here's the news with John Bell and Aaron Cook. Caveman and Us. Archaeologists have long questioned the fate of the Neanderthals that lived in Europe, Middle East, and Western Asia up to 30,000 years ago. Did they die out when they encountered the modern Homo sapiens, who migrated across from Africa, or did they interbreed? A new study from the University of Bristol shines some very interesting light on this question. Genetic analysis of the Neanderthal genome, based on bone samples from three different individuals found in Croatia, reveal that modern man and Neanderthals did in fact interbreed. Between 1-4% to of ethnic European, Asian, Native American, and South Pacific people's DNA is inherited from the Neanderthals. Since the ancestors of many of these regional groups never encountered Neanderthals, it seems the genetic assimilation of Neanderthals into modern humans happened in the Middle East between 50 to 80,000 years ago, as modern humans migrated out of Africa and before splitting into separate groups to colonize the world. In line with these findings, the study also indicates modern African descendants inherit no DNA from the Neanderthals since only the descendants of modern man that left Africa ever encountered them. The extent of interbreeding is not particularly clear, however the data does focus the time down to either a short period with intensive interbreeding or an extended period with only a small level of interbreeding. Interestingly, the genetic analysis of Indo-Pacific people suggests a second genetic mixing of their early ancestors with another non-modern human group around 40,000 years ago. This interbreeding, however, is most likely not with Neanderthals since there's no evidence they ever traveled that far east or south. Alternate candidates for ancestry are probably Homo erectus and species related to Homo floriensis, a small species that lived on an Indonesian island until about 13,000 years ago. Poland is joining Japan to be the first European country with biometric bank machines. The BPSSA bank machines will soon be outfitted with a finger slot that scans the client's fingertip for his or her unique, minute network of blood veins to establish transaction identity. Although the upgrade will only begin with a few machines in Warsaw, there will be actually about 200 more installed in the bank network by the end of the year. The bank expects the change to be highly successful, albeit a little bit slow since it's going to take clients time to adapt to the procedure as well as trust the new system. Have you got the balls to be a cricket? We've all heard the sound of crickets on a warm summer night, and maybe you're aware that it's a ploy by the blokes to attract women. Chicks love guys in bands, right? But the song is having an effect on other males as well. Researchers in California have found that juvenile male crickets who grow up in the presence of a lot of singing from other, from other single males tend to be larger than males growing up in a silent environment. They also have 10% more reproductive tissue mass in their testes. Biologist Nathan Bailey said it shows insects are not just mindless automatons. They have the ability to adapt to their environments and respond to signals. <sighs> Ever wondered why we sigh? Researchers at the University of Leuven in Belgium 
hope to answer that question by rigging 42 people with sensor-equipped shirts that record their breathing, heart rates, and blood carbon dioxide levels over 20 minutes of quiet sitting. Analysis of the data showed that when a participant sighed, the individual's respiratory dynamics were drastically changed, sort of a resetting of the respiratory system. The information seems to follow their theory that a person's respiratory system is a dynamic and chaotic balance system, constantly balancing many internal and external factors, such as how much oxygen we immediately need, muscle activation and fatigue, maintenance, and keeping the lungs ready for the next breath. They think that a person just needs to take a moment, every once in a while, to sigh and reset their system. So on that note, let's just take a breather from the news. Listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and recorded here in Sydney in the studios of 2SER. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed, because it is, because it is a scientific fact. As the globe warms, the glaciers are melting and the oceans are rising. The human consequence of this is that people living on Pacific islands are watching their homes disappear under the sea. They can only move inland so far before their whole island is flooded. Melissa Neighbour is media director of Project Survival Pacific, an initiative of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition to help the people of the Pacific Islands make their voices heard and deal with the watery doom threatening their way of life. She spoke to Ian Wolfe. I'm talking to Melissa Neighbour of Project Survival Pacific. And Melissa, who organises Project Survival Pacific? Project Survival Pacific is a project under, run by the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. They run a whole range of initiatives and Project Survival is just one of those. And you're looking at Kiribati. We look at all islands in the Pacific Island region. So we're dealing with Pacific Islanders from Federated States of Micronesia, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, yeah. And these Pacific islands are basically at danger of being flooded and wiped out by global warming. That's correct. They are in danger right now and it's going to get a lot worse as we see temperatures increase. Mm. So basically, Kiribati's going first. Is yeah, what it's, I understand. It's, it is being impacted right now. They're building seawalls to protect their homes, and a number of communities have already had to relocate. That's actually the same for Papua New Guinea as well. There's been communities that have had to relocate there as well. See, I think that's something that most people don't realise. While there's all this debate about climate change sceptics and people denying it's happening or denying humans are, are doing it, people don't seem to be very aware that there are already places that are flooded. 
exactly. Yeah, it's been impacting them for a number of years. And I think the signs are here in Australia as well, but it's just whether or not you choose to, to recognise them. But we've seen, even at Byron Bay, we've seen erosion problems as well, fires, but um, certainly not. it's not a matter of survival for us yet, whereas for the Pacific Islanders, it is a matter of their survival. Absolutely. And as you said, they've already had to abandon their houses and move inland. Mm, yeah. There's a video on YouTube that shows someone looking out to see where their house used to be and where their house is now and building a seawall that won't last more than a few years. Yeah, it's, it's devastating. It really is devastating. And I think something that's different for, for, for us, I mean, it's hard for an Australian to think about leaving their home, but for the Pacific Islanders, their culture is really wrapped up in, in the land that they live on. So that's at risk of being lost as well. Well, that's right. I mean, they don't want to be turned into refugees. and they, Because if they were turned into refugees, not only would they be desperately knocking on people's doors, but they wouldn't be able to live on an island anymore. Exactly. And they'd be desperately knocking on Australia's doors as well. They are our neighbours. We are their big brother. And we're the you know, biggest landmass closest to them. So they'll be, they'll be coming here to, to seek refuge. A number of governments in the Pacific Islands, the prime ministers um, or leaders, have started to look at upskilling their citizens so that they can actually migrate rather than have to be refugees. They're very proud people. So that's what the government's looking at doing there. So they're looking at being skilled migrants. That's correct. So that they can come here and actually apply for positions and jobs as opposed to, yeah, being a refugee. And these nations are actually members of the United Nations, aren't they? Yes. So that means they would have been entitled to go to Copenhagen and talk about the climate change. That's correct. They did, yes. Um, I believe most of them went underneath the negotiating block of the Alliance of Small Island States. And you went there as well? Yes, I did. I attended with Project Survival Pacific and we fundraised or or we secured funding to take 11 Pacific Islanders with us. Right. So they got to go. And how were they received? Very, very well. (laughs) We had... Our whole mission was to give them a platform to tell their stories. So we thought of a number of ways we could do that and to get their voice out there as loud as possible. So while we were there, we wore very bright coloured T-shirts from the Pacific Islands and that really stood out. So as we were walking around the conference centre over the two weeks, we had media just running up to us and asking us who we were and what we were about. So that worked really well. And uh, the Pacific Islanders arranged a presentation to tell their stories, which they also incorporated traditional song and dance into as well. So that was really well received and they presented that amazingly and um, with a lot of heart. So that was quite a moving presentation for the people there at the conference. And at the UN, they seem to be very unaware or, well, until they hear from them, they seem to be very unaware of the Pacific Islands. I think it's just off the radar. (laughs) The big countries are really uh, self-interested and they don't really take the time to look at what's happening in the rest of the world. So that's why it's important. The voices of the Pacific Islanders do get out. I think they play a critical role in the climate change progress. Were the islands even on the atlas at the UN? No, they weren't. They were represented with a big blob and so it just goes to show that, yeah, they're not on the radar and and that's why we were hitting home the message of keep the Pacific on the map. Yes, that sounds very good. Mm. 
I've got something here about a future fund. Yes, that's an idea that we came up with, um, Project Survival Pacific came up with just recently actually. We had our team building weekend for 2010 um, in, on the 1st of May and um, that's we all come together once a year to discuss our goals and the Future Fund is an idea of putting aside money that we fundraise to help um, villages in the Pacific Islands and we thought we'd just start one step at a time and just work with one village very closely over the next few years to see what it is that they need to help them either adapt or mitigate to climate change impacts. So that may even be needing to change the type of crops that they're growing or whatnot. So we'd be be providing the resources and the funding to help them do that. And it's a model that we would like to see potentially picked up by other organisations and and people as well who are in a position to donate or, I guess, um, give funding. So that, you know, us here in Australia, we are working with villagers over there to help them. So with this Future Fund donations, if people do want to donate, where do they go on the web? On our website, you will find a donations page. Our website is youthprojectsurvival.org and there's no www in the front. (laughs) Discovered that this morning. (laughs) (laughs) And as well as that, you're also talking about upskilling the migrants, the people who who will need to migrate, like in Kiribati, where they, they absolutely can't stay. How long do they think they've got if things are not improving? Um, I don't actually know the exact timeline that they're dealing with, but I know that it is in our lifetime potentially, depending on how fast we can start cutting emissions. <laughs> yes, but with all the the people who don't want to go first, which seems to be the general tone of politics in Australia at the moment, is that, well, we could do it, but then we'd be leading and we don't want to be seen <laughs> as leaders in Australia. Yeah, it's a big cop out. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Um, we want to lead on other things, but we don't want to lead on this one. Yeah. And it's such a shame because we really are in a position to be leaders with our, you know, great landmass and, and natural resource potential. It's such a shame that we don't have leaders that are really at the forefront of that. That's right. It's, it's where you would think in an election year, it's where you might stand out if you took leadership. Yeah. Yes. And what were some of the slogans you had at the Copenhagen conference? Yep. So we, as I said before, keep the Pacific on the map. Um, we like that one. And also uh, 1.5 to stay alive. Yes. We wore badges with that on there and also handed badges out as well. My favourite signs on the big march on the Saturday, I think it was the 12th of December, made headlines back here as well. There was about 100,000 people that marched and we marched and two degrees, (laughs) it was freezing. And there were a couple of signs that I really, really liked. And one of those was, um, there is no planet B. And the other one was, make love, not CO2. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want the full image of this, you've got to realise that everyone was in loud Islander clothes, often wearing thongs. Mm in two degrees yep. in winter in yep. Denmark. Middle of winter, snowing as well. Yeah, the Pacific Islanders, a lot of the, um, the Pacific Islanders that we took had actually never left um, their countries before. So it was the first time they'd experienced cold and snow. <laughs> Wonderful. So this is the human impact of the rising oceans from global warming. Mm. And really, it doesn't matter whether you're a skeptic about what caused it. It's happening. Mm. And we've got to do something for the people who are going to be drowned, (laughs) flooded out. That's exactly right. We're talking about the loss of lives, cultures and entire nations. And you can't rebuild cultures once they're gone. That's exactly right. Melissa Neighbour, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Melissa Neighbour of Project Survival Pacific speaking to Ian Wolfe about how to help the people of the Pacific Islands survive the flooding of their homes by continually rising seas. 
You can support Project Survival Pacific at projectsurvivalpacific.org. We have the mountains and the forests and the rivers and the valleys and the natural resources they contain. We have the natural resources, but the theme of my discourse is just how long will those resources all remain? If we study conservation and practice conservation, there's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong. It's my earnest observation that the anti-population join the chorus of the conservation song. With scientific crop rotation and the proper irrigation, we can stop our soil from washing down the drain. We can increase reforestation and reduce the conflagrations that are burning up the trees that do remain. If we study conservation and practice conservation, there's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong. It's my earnest observation that the entire population join the chorus of the conservation song. We have to find the right solution for the problem of pollution that is poisoning the water and the air. And it's appropriate to mention that an ounce of flood prevention would be worth a pound of after-flood repair. If we study conservation and practice conservation, there's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong. It's my earnest observation that the anti-population join the chorus of the conservation song. And practice conservation There's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong It's my earnest observation That the anti-population Join the chorus of the conservation song Now, by now, I'm sure you've all heard about the terrible BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, but I thought we could have a little discussion about the what is the meaning of peak oil exactly, and just do a quick recap about science and facts behind BP oil. So the spill in Mexico. It's a massively ongoing spill, which began in the Gulf of Mexico on April 20, 2010. The time of this recording, it's been over a month. The spill followed a blowout that caused an explosion in the Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling rig. The spill covers an area of 6,500 kilometers squared, according to estimates made on May 3rd. The spill, originating from a deep water well about 1,500 meters below sea level, is spilling roughly 5 to 25,000 barrels of crude oil per day. It's the worst U.S. oil spill disaster in history, eclipsing the Exxon Valdez oil spill of 1989. Experts expect it will reap environmental havoc on the Gulf of Mexico's fishing industry and its habitat for hundreds of bird species. The U.S. government has named BP, who is the chief developer of the oil field, as the responsible party in the incident. 
BP's oil well failed a key pressure test just hours before it exploded on April 20th. The test indicated that pressure was building up in the well, which could indicate oil or gas was seeping in and could lead to an explosion. Yet it appears that companies did not suspend operations. Attempts to install a larger dome over the spill have failed due to the accumulation of clarthrate hydrate crystals at the site of the spill. Current plans include having robots wrap up the leaking pipes in outer castings and shooting objects into the main leak. Just to give you an idea of how massive the spill really is, let's talk about the total spill volume. So it's about 1.8 million barrels, which would fill about 900,000 cars for a year. It represents 7.5 minutes of the world's daily consumption of oil. So uh, uh, this oil spill is provoking a lot of talk about that, that catchphrase, peak oil, but I wasn't actually that sure as to what that actually meant before researching for the show tonight. So do, do you guys know anything about peak oil? I know it's an idea that's been around since the 70s, but Ian, I think you know a little bit more than me. I know that King Hubbard invented it, peak theory, in 1956 to predict when there was peak oil in the US, and that they're also now talking about peak uranium. And was he, um, his predictions in the 1970s, was he correct about those? He was absolutely correct. The US did peak in the 1970s and it's tailed off ever since. And a definition of peak oil is basically if you have, if you can visualise a graph of how much oil is being produced, there's more and more and more being produced as we find more oil fields. But the world is finite, so at some point we'll find as many oil fields as there are to find and that'll be the most oil we can produce and then after that we'll progressively produce less and less as we start to use it up and then at some point there'll be very little oil for us to produce at all but once it starts going down everything changes so so what i've read about peak oil is um that they're expecting it to peak around 2015 at around um, 90 million barrels per day currently we're producing about 75 million million barrels per day um, and they their experts aren't sure as to whether the oil production is going to plateau or actually decrease after that but what's sure is that it's going to be followed by dramatic changes in lifestyle it pretty much has to go down because there's only so much in the world like the world is a finite place it can't just go on forever yeah even with the continuous uh, surveying for more oil well, there's still limits. The world's, I don't I care know. how much you survey, oh, yeah, yeah. the world's a limited place. Oh, That's the illusion that the economists and the mining companies generally try to push. Look, we just keep looking, we'll keep finding more. But the planet's got a limited amount of space. It, it is limited, but because they keep looking for more oil and unfortunately keep finding it in the Arctic, the Antarctic, and apparently Venezuela just recently, um, I feel like that peak oil value should be changing or at least being moved further away over and over again. Well, I think what the experts are saying about peak oil is, you know, there will always be oil somewhere, but the problem is whether it's it's economically feasible to extract it. And it's just pretty soon not going to be worth it in it's terms gonna, of... It's going to be too expensive to use the way we're used to using it. Yeah. In terms of, of how drastic the change is going to be, I think it's really important to remember that 90% of the world's transport depends on oil. And um, lots of things that we use every day, chemicals and plastic wrappings and furniture, pharmaceuticals, communications, they all need oil. And so far, I mean, there's some developments. I don't, I don't know that anything has really filled that vacuum that's going to happen. Well, if I could... Uh go back to the start of automobiles and, and very early on they were actually, a lot of them were electric. 
there was actually um, I, I know there was a city in the states that was running electric trucks around its 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 streets, and it was one of those. I'm sure uh, Mr. Rockefeller back in the day would have had something with kill, something to do with killing off that industry. But the fact is, there's an awful lot of coal still in the ground. There's hundreds of years worth of coal for Australia in the ground, and all that we'll do because let's face it there's not going to be any political will to do anything about climate change as we'll start digging up more coal and we'll have to move to electric vehicles. I don't know if there's a chemical process that can make plastics from coal, but um, that's, that's what will happen in, in my view. There is a process that can make oil, but thus far, um, as we already know, it's just not worth doing that because you can get natural oil, so why try to make it yourself? Too much energy, too much money. I know they were using soy protein as a basis for making plastic products as well, mm. successfully. But, of course, the the problem with using soy, soy or other vegetable is um, the food. <laughs> it's going to make food extremely expensive. Exactly. Exactly. If you start making oil and plastic out of food, then there's less food. I mean, that's the whole thing about corn in the U.S. and corn to alcohol. It's the same. Corn goes to plastic. It's very similar. Um, there's also a company in the U.S. that's turning waste meat into oil that can be burned, but I think that's... I don't know how nice the plastics will be that come from that. <laughs> I think maybe the smart solution is that it's going to be more regional, what sort of vehicles people use. Already in Brazil, I know that it's about 10% of the fuel comes from um, a sort of biodiesel. Bio so they already use food there, and it's only in their country, and it seems to work well for them. Um, perhaps in the U.S. they'll start doing the same thing or in other countries, but it's going to be more of a regional choice because we still need to decide what the next big fuel source is if it's not just simple electric batteries. Mm. And well, Obama's been pushing the nuclear program in the States as well, and that could be um, pollution problems aside. It could be quite clever in terms of sustain. It's not that sustainable is the problem. There's a thing called peak uranium, mm. and it turns out we reach peak uranium in 2035, only 20 years after peak oil. So uranium's going to run out pretty quickly. So it's not really a good substitute for oil. So we are going to have to go to the renewables, um, however politically correct they might be. I hope to hear in from some of our listeners about their opinions about peak oil and peak uranium. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise. If you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing on the program were Ian Wolfe, Aaron Cook, and John Bale. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.